Section 9 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Importance of steady perseverance in religion, nature of true slavery, nature of true liberty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, You shall make us free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house for ever but the Son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. These verses show us, for one thing, the importance of steady perseverance in Christ's service. There were many, it seems, at this particular period who professed to believe on our Lord and expressed a desire to become his disciples. There is nothing to show that they had true faith. They appear to have acted under the influence of temporary excitement, without considering what they were doing. And to them our Lord addresses this instructive warning, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. This sentence contains a mine of wisdom. To make a beginning in religious life is comparatively easy. Not a few mixed motives assist us. The love of novelty, the praise of well-meaning but indiscreet professors, the secret satisfaction of feeling how good I am, the universal excitement attending a new position, all these things combine to aid the young believer. Aided by them, he begins to run the race that leads to heaven, lays aside many bad habits, takes up many good ones, has many comfortable frames and feelings, and gets on swimmingly for a time. But when the newness of his position is past and gone, when the freshness of his feelings is rubbed off and lost, when the world and the devil begin to pull hard at him, when the weakness of his own heart begins to appear, then it is that he finds out the real difficulties of vital Christianity. Then it is that he discovers the deep wisdom of our Lord's saying now before us. It is not beginning, but continuing a religious profession, that is the test of true grace. We should remember these things in forming our estimate of other people's religion, no doubt we ought to be thankful when we see any one ceasing to do evil and learning to do well. We must not despise the day of small things, Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10. But we must not forget that to begin is one thing, and to go on is quite another. Patient continuance in well-doing is the only sure evidence of grace. Not he that runs fast and furiously at first, but he that keeps up his speed, is he that runs so as to obtain. By all means, let us be hopeful when we see anything like conversion, but let us not make too sure that it is a real conversion, until time has set its seal upon it. Time and wear test metals, and prove whether they are solid or plated. Time and wear, in like manner, are the surest tests of a man's religion. Where there is spiritual life, there will be continuance and steady perseverance. It is the man who goes on as well as begins that is the disciple indeed. These verses show us, for another thing, the nature of true slavery. The Jews were fond of boasting, though without any just cause, 
that they were politically free and were not in bondage to any foreign power. Our Lord reminds them that there was another bondage to which they were giving no heed, although enslaved by it. He that committeth sin is the servant of sin. How true that is! How many on every side are thorough slaves, though they do not acknowledge it. They are led captive by their besetting corruptions and infirmities, and seem to have no power to get free. Ambition, the love of money, the passion for drink, the craving for pleasure and excitement, gambling, gluttony, illicit connections, all these are so many tyrants among men. Each and all have crowds of unhappy prisoners bound hand and foot in their chains. The wretched prisoners will not allow their bondage. They will even boast sometimes that they are eminently free, but many of them know better. There are times when the iron enters into their souls, and they feel bitterly that they are slaves. There is no slavery like this. Sin is indeed the hardest of all taskmasters. Misery and disappointment by the way, despair and hell in the end, these are the only wages that sin pays to its servants. To deliver men from this bondage is the grand object of the gospel. To awaken people to a sense of their degradation, to show them their chains, to make them arise and struggle to be free, this is the great end for which Christ sent forth his ministers. Happy is he who has opened his eyes and found out his danger. To know that we are being led captive is the very first step towards deliverance. These verses show us, lastly, the nature of true liberty. Our Lord declares this to the Jews in one comprehensive sentence. He says, If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Liberty, most Englishmen know, is rightly esteemed one of the highest temporal blessings. Freedom from foreign dominion, a free constitution, free trade, a free press, civil and religious liberty. What a world of meaning lies beneath these phrases. How many would sacrifice life and fortune to maintain the things which they represent? Yet after all our boasting, there are many so-called freemen who are nothing better than slaves. There are many who are totally ignorant of the highest, purest form of liberty. The noblest liberty is that which is the property of the true Christian. Those only are perfectly free people whom the Son of God makes free. All else will sooner or later be found slaves. Wherein does the liberty of true Christians consist? Of what is their freedom made up? They are freed from the guilt and consequences of sin by the blood of Christ. Justified, pardoned, forgiven, they can look forward boldly to the day of judgment and cry, Who shall lay anything to our charge? Who is he that condemneth? They are free from the power of sin by the grace of Christ's Spirit. Sin has no longer dominion over them. Renewed, converted, sanctified, they mortify and tread down sin and are no longer led captive by it. Liberty, like this, is the portion of all true Christians in the day that they flee to Christ by faith and commit their souls to him. That day they become freemen. Liberty, like this, is their portion forevermore. Death cannot stop it. The grave cannot even hold their bodies for more than a little season. Those whom Christ makes free are free to all eternity. Let us never rest till we have some personal experience of this freedom ourselves. Without it, all other freedom is a worthless privilege. Free speech, free laws, political freedom, commercial freedom, national freedom. 
All these cannot smooth down a dying pillow, or disarm death of his sting, or fill our consciences with peace. Nothing can do that but the freedom which Christ alone bestows. He gives it freely to all who seek it humbly. Then let us never rest till it is our own. Notes, John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Verse 31. Then Jesus said, Jews, believed him. It is clear, I think, from the tone of the conversation that runs from this verse uninterruptedly to the end of the chapter, that this believing was not faith of the heart. These Jews only believed that our Lord was one sent from heaven and deserved attention. But they were the same Jews to whom he says by and by, Ye are of your father the devil. If ye continue, my word, disciples indeed. This sentence does not mean that these Jews had really begun to receive Christ's word into their hearts. Such a sense would be contradictory to the context. It must mean, if you take up a firm stand on the gospel and word of truth which I have come to proclaim, and go on sticking firmly to it in your hearts and lives, not merely convinced and wishing, but actually following me, then you are truly my disciples. The word rendered, indeed, is more literally, truly. The converse throws light upon our Lord's meaning. Ye are not truly my disciples unless you continue steadfast in my doctrine. Our Lord teaches the great principle that steady continuance is the only real and safe proof of discipleship. No perseverance, no grace, no continuance in the word, no real faith and conversion. This is one of the meeting points between Calvinist and Armenian. He that has true grace will not fall away. He that falls away has no true grace and must not flatter himself. He is a disciple. Let us note that it is not the word continuing in us, but our continuing in the word, which makes us true disciples. The distinction is very important. The word might continue in us and not be seen. If we continue in the word, our lives will show it. In John chapter 15, verse 7, we have both expressions together. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you. Verse 32. And ye shall know the truth. The expression, the truth, here cannot, I think, mean the personal truth, the Messiah. It must be the whole doctrinal truth concerning myself, my nature, my mission, and my gospel. Steady continuance in my service shall lead to clear knowledge. It is a parallel saying to the sentence, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Chapter 7, verse 17. Honest obedience and steady perseverance in acting up to our light and doing what we learn are one grand secret of obtaining more knowledge. Chrysostom, however, thinks that our Lord means by truth himself. Ye shall know me, for I am the truth. So also Augustine, Theophylact, Euthymius, and Lamp. The truth shall make you free. This freedom can only mean spiritual freedom, freedom from the guilt, burden, and dominion of sin, freedom from the heavy yoke of Phariseeism, under which many Jews were laboring and heavy laden. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. The gospel I preach and its good news shall deliver you from spiritual bondage and make you feel like men set at liberty. I think these words must have been spoken with special reference to the bondage and spiritual slavery in which the Jews were kept by
by their principal teachers when our Lord came among them. In the synagogue at Nazareth, he had said that he came to preach deliverance to the captives, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. This, however, is the first place in the Gospels where he openly declares that his gospel will give man freedom. Until truth comes into a man's heart, he never really knows what it is to feel true spiritual liberty. Augustine says, To Christ let us all flee. Against sin let us call on God to interpose as our liberator. Let us ask to be taken on sale, that we may be redeemed by his blood. Verse 33. They answered, We be Abraham's seed. Here we see the usual pride of carnal descent coming out in the Jewish mind. It is just what John the Baptist told them when he preached, Think not to say that we have Abraham as our father. Matthew chapter 3, verse 19. And were never in bondage to any man. This is the blindness of pride in its strongest form. The seed of Abraham were in bondage to the Egyptians and Babylonians for many years, to say nothing of the frequent bondages to Philistines and other nations, as recorded in the book of Judges. Even now, while they spoke, they were in subjection to the Romans. The power of self-deception in unconverted man is infinite. These Jews were not more unreasonable than many nowadays who say, We are not dead in sin, we have grace, we have faith, we are regenerate, we have the Spirit, while their lives show plainly that they are totally mistaken. How sayest thou made free? This question was partly asked in anger and resentment, and partly in curiosity. Angry as the Jews were at the idea of being subject to anyone, they yet caught at the expression, be made free. It made them think of the glorious kingdom of Messiah foretold in the prophets. Art thou going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Art thou going to set us free from the Romans? We should observe here, as elsewhere, the readiness of our Lord's hearers to put a carnal sense on spiritual language. Nicodemus misunderstanding the new birth, the Samaritan woman and the living waters, the Capernaites and the bread from heaven, are all illustrations of what I mean. See John chapter 3 verse 4, chapter 4 verse 11, chapter 6 verse 34. Pierce thinks the Jews here spoke of themselves individually and not of the Jewish nation, yet surely, even when they spoke, they were subject to the Romans. Henry observes, Carnal hearts are sensible of no other grievances than those that molest the body and injure their secular affairs. Talk to them of encroachments on their civil liberties and property, tell of waste committed on their lands, or damaged unto their houses, and they understand you very well and can give you a sensible answer. The thing touches and affects them. But discourse to them of the bondage of sin or captivity to Satan, and a liberty by Christ, tell them of wronged unto their souls, and you bring strange things to them. Verse 34. Jesus answered, etc. In this verse our Lord shows his hearers what kind of freedom he had meant, by showing the kind of slavery from which he wished them to be delivered. Did they ask in what sense he meant they should be made free? Let them know, first of all, that in their present state of mind, wicked, worldly, and unbelieving, they were in a state of bondage. Living in habitual sin, they were the servants of sin. This was a general postulation which they themselves must admit. The man that lived willfully in habits of sin was acknowledged by all to be the slave of sin. Sin ruled over him, and he was its servant. This was an axiom in religion which they could not dispute, 
for even heathen philosophers admitted it. See Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 20, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Committeth, we must remember here, does not mean commits an act of sin, but habitually lives in the commission of sin. It is in this sense that St. John says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, and he that is born of God doth not commit sin. 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Verse 35. And the servant abideth not, etc. This is a difficult, because a very elliptical, verse. The leading object in our Lord's mind seems to be to show the Jews that servile and slavish condition in which they were, so long as they rejected him, the true Messiah, and the free and elevated position which they would occupy if they would believe in him and become his disciples. At present, living under the bondage of the ceremonial law, and content with it and Pharisaic traditions, you are no better than slaves and servants, liable, like Hagar and Ishmael, to be cast out of God's favor and presence at any moment. Receiving me and believing on me as the Messiah, you would at once be lifted to the position of sons and would abide forever in God's favor, as adopted children and dear sons and daughters. You know yourselves that the servant has no certain tenure in the house and may be cast out at any time, while the son is heir to the father and has a certain tenure in the house forever. Know that I wish you to be raised from the relation of servants to that of sons. Now, under the bondage you are in, you are like slaves. Receiving me and my gospel, you would become children and free. Something like this seems to be the leading idea in our Lord's mind, but it is vain to deny that it is a dark and difficult sentence, and requires much filling up and paraphrasing to complete its meaning. The simplest plan is to take it as a parenthesis. It then becomes a comment on the word servant, which to a Jew familiar with the story of Hagar and Ishmael would be very instructive, and would convey the latent thought that our Lord wished them to be not servants, but sons. I cannot for a moment think that the son in the last clause means the son of God, or that the whole clause was meant to teach his eternity. It is certainly possible that a deep mystical sense may lie under the words servant and son in this verse. Servant may mean the Jew, content with the inferior and servile religion of Moses. Son may mean the believer in Christ, who receives the adoption and enjoys gospel liberty. He that is content with Judaism will find his system and religion soon pass away. He that enters into Christ's service will find himself a son forever. But this is at best only conjectural and a somewhat questionable interpretation. One thing, at any rate, is very clear to my mind. The latent thought in our Lord's mind is a reference to the story of Hagar and her son Ishmael being cast out as bondservants, while Isaac, the son and heir, abode in the house. He wished to impress on his hearers' minds that he desired them, like Isaac, to have the privilege of sons forever and to be free to all eternity. Keeping this thought in view, and regarding the verse as a parenthesis, its difficulties are not insuperable. Chrysostom says, Abideth not means hath not power to grant favors as not being master of the house, but the son is master of the house. The Jewish priests were the servants and Christ was the son. The priests had no power to set free, the son of God had. Theophylact and Euthymius take the same view. Maldonatus calls attention to the expression in Hebrews where Moses and Christ are put in contrast, and each in connection with the word house. 
Moses as a servant, Christ as a son. St. Paul certainly seems there to refer to the passage, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 2, 5, and 6. Verse 36. If the Son shall make you free, etc. In this verse, our Lord explains what he had meant by freedom. It was a freedom from sin, its guilt, and power, and consequences, which believers in him were to receive. If I, the Son of Man, make you free, in the sense of delivering you from the burden of sin, then you will be free indeed. This was the freedom that he wished them to obtain. Here, as elsewhere, our Lord carefully avoids saying anything to bring on himself the charge of rebelling against constituted authorities and of heading a popular rise for liberty. The word rendered, indeed, here is not the word so rendered at the 31st verse. Here it means, really, in reality. From the principle of the verb, to be, there it means, truly. Let us not forget in these days that the only liberty which is truly valuable in God's sight is that which Christ gives. All political liberty, however useful for many purposes, is worthless unless we are children of God and heirs of the kingdom by faith in Jesus. He only is perfectly free who is free from sin. All besides are slaves. He that would be free in this fashion has only to apply to Christ for freedom. It is the peculiar office and privilege of the Lord Jesus to enfranchise forever all who come to him. Augustine carries the freedom here promised far into the future. He remarks, When shall there be full and perfect liberty? When there shall be no enemies, when the last enemy shall be destroyed, even death. End of section 9